Thank you for joining us and welcome. You're listening to Hey Siri Podcast and I'm Tom Siri. I'm the founder and CEO of RealSelf.com, something I've been doing for, well now, 13 plus years. And something I really am passionate about is sharing things that I discover and learn. I like to look for not just what trends are out there that are apparent, but underlying insights that can be gathered by looking at meta-information, paying attention to consumers and what they're saying in our platform, and spending a lot of time with my audience, which are made up of doctors, practices, individuals who have industry relationships in the aesthetic space. Welcome to another episode of Hey Siri. It's the podcast that I get to take you to what this Siri thinks is interesting, fascinating, or helpful for how you run your small business, your practice, or pursue entrepreneurship. I am extremely excited today to have a new guest. I have Dr. Sonia Badresha Bunsel here, and you'd prefer to go by Dr. Sonia. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me. Congratulations on your podcast and doing the great work that you do. And I love the Real Self team and everything you guys bring with trusted industry and consumers and experienced physicians just all coming together on one platform. Gives a lot of good guidance, support, and good information. So I'm really honored to be here today. Great. Thank you. And you are a board-certified dermatologist. And can you just talk a little bit about your profession, your career, where you're located, and just a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I started my private practice that I'm currently in with my husband, who is a plastic surgeon here in East Bay in Danville. We just celebrated our 10-year anniversary last year. And I actually just did a recent podcast with Real Self about the evolution of our practice. So we started as you know a one-stop shop of everything, dermatology and plastic surgery. We took insurance, we did aesthetics, we had 40 lasers, we had 10 providers doing everything, Mohs surgery, medical dermatology, aesthetics. And over time, we realized we get a lot of patients and we get a lot of ethnic skin patients and we wanted to support the need. But at the end of the day, we also wanted to be experts in what we do really well. So this is where we evolved with the healthcare landscape as well, the changes going on there to really be focused on doing the basic handful of procedures where we're basically focused on doing five main procedures in the office that we go full force and marketing and educating and doing everything we can to raise awareness on those procedures and be really known as the experts and the best in the field. And that includes in-office safe procedures with plastic surgery, in-office mini facelifts, in-office laser lipo, in-office hair transplants, We also have 40 lasers. We also do lots of skin of color. In fact, 40% of our population is skin of color. And I think they appreciate going somewhere that knows their skin and that they can feel safe in their skin. Yeah, and that's the topic for sure today. I want to go quite deep into with you as the skin of color and really frame it in, in sort of different ways. One, you know, the state of skin of color in dermatology here in 2020 Two, I'm really just fascinated of learning more and being more educated myself and my audience of like skin of color 101. You just help us understand the differences between people's skin, the right way to refer to skin of color and skin tone, skin type. And then time allows, I want to go into some controversies in particular skin whitening and lightening. And that's really been hitting the news as of this week. And then, uh, you know, just close from there. But 
I'll admit going into, I really was excited to talk to you because of this expertise that you've built and, and this practice that does address a diverse patient base with diverse needs. It's something that I, I think oftentimes about myself, I was raised to be colorblind. I was told, you know, treat everyone the, the same, no matter what way they look, which is noble. And you can understand the message is, is not a, necessarily a bad one, except in today's light, it really can be seen as a way to lead to what is now being referred to as structural racism and all the issues now about racism in America being brought back to the forefront appropriately to talk about. I'm just wonder, you know, how this ultimately shows up in the world of cosmetic dermatology and plastic surgery and in skincare. So, you know, I have a hunch that the overall world of dermatology and plastic surgery underserve women and men of skin of color. And I'll, before I go ask a few questions about that, I just was wondering if you agree with that framing up front that there is a underserved consumer out there in the world of dermatology. Absolutely. I think that we have made some headway over the years, but it's been very slow. I think there's still, I grapple with finding research articles that really have a diverse patient population. I grapple with when I'm doing some marketing, finding skin of color images, and oftentimes it's white or black, and there's no diversity or range in the middle. So 80% white, maybe 20% black, but, but that's it. So I struggle with what's available to me at this present time, even in 2020. And you know, it's important to know by 2050, half the population will be of ethnic origin, will be of skin of color. And we certainly haven't made the headway that we should, knowing the statistic is right around the corner. So there's absolutely a need for better representation for skin of color in clinical trials, skin types being represented in medical education, in textbooks and lectures, even more questions in our board exams, an increased number of dermatologists in skin of color, but also in all facets, right? All facets of the world, of the industry, whether it's you know, film and movie and fashion and all of that, which I ventured into those fields and I had that whole, I'm, you know, don't fit in a box type of a stereotype as well. So, you know, it, unfortunately that is a fact, but the opportunity is there to make change. Yeah, I noticed I was doing some research and I found that UCSF has a dedicated skin of color dermatology clinic. And I was noting that the chair of the dermatology program there, I don't know if you're familiar with them or not, was asked what the rationale for that concept was. And this is the quote I read in a recent article and said, people of color have been underrepresented in medicine. And for that reason, populations of people of color have really been underserved. I assume you would agree with this statement, but does it apply as well to cosmetic dermatology, not just dermatology? Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And it's across all boards. I was actually a clinical instructor, volunteer faculty there at UCSF for a number of years and worked with you know, all the faculty there. And they certainly you know, saw a great representation of skin of color patients in their facility because of San Francisco. The unfortunate part is that I think I read that Dr. Lester is helped launch the Institute, but she's the only Black dermatologist in San Francisco. So there's an absolute need for that. When I was in residency, you know, I, I came from a demographic where we were 
serving mostly at Penn State farmers and Amish communities, you know, a lot of baby boomers. So we didn't get all of the gamut of the diverse colors and backgrounds and things. So there was definitely not this multicultural dermatology education that's being stressed. And part of it is just because of demographics. Although we were a center where we had renowned experts in hair disorders. So we did get, you know, the advantage of seeing African-American hair and hair loss, which is a whole other ballpark that is not necessarily a part of the education of all programs. So I actually paved my own path to try to get the education that I wanted. And I worked with, I was so fortunate to work with some of the pioneers. Susan Taylor is one of the pioneers. I helped write a book with her, Elliot Battle. I got to work with some of the laser gurus as well and really understand the depth of knowledge that it takes when treating skin of color, including Tina Alster, Richard Fitzpatrick, Rick Narokar. So I really developed my own path to learn and be a student of skin of color. And it gave me all the resources that I have now today to be able to treat both in the medical arena as well as the aesthetic arena. And it's a never ending learning curve and there's still more research to be done and more work to be done there. So I commend UCSF for launching that. I believe it was done last year, but there are several actually skin of color institutes out there. So the good news is, is that there has been work done over several years Mount Sinai has um, Andrew Alexis, who's the director of Skin of Color there, Susan Taylor, who's the founding director at Skin of Color Institute at St. Luke's Roosevelt. And then you have pioneers and these legends like Pearl Grimes and Paul Kelly, who really started the wave for Skin of Color. So we've had, you know, these successors who've done really great work in getting some awareness out there, but just more work needs to be done. So we're still at infancy and we've got a long way to go. I have to acknowledge I'm very naive to dermatology and the the science of dermatology. I, I've read many articles, of course, over the years, but I feel particularly naive around skin of color and the differences in skin anatomy, physiology, and function. I realize that we talked about that probably for several courses and, and for hours, but is there a way for my audience to grapple with what are the key points of differentiation that are important and why skin of color should be something that has a distinct focus point? Absolutely. So this is one of my subjects that I write on and write book chapters on is the biology, physiology, and function of skin of color and how that relates. So looking at the anatomy of skin of color affects diagnosis, which then in turn affects treatment. And the most important factors are There's increased melanin in skin of color, which gives color our shade. These melanocytes, which are the pigment-producing cells, however, are very, very highly reactive and very sensitive to things like trauma or injury and sun. And we see that day in and day out when it comes to the diagnosis that we, is the number one diagnosis that we make in skin of color, which is post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation. These brown marks, these, the scarring. So that is one feature. Now, the good news is there is less incidence of skin cancer, less photo aging because there's a natural built-in sunscreen effect. However, we still need sunblock as well. In addition, if you go deeper into the skin, there are these little cells called fibroblasts. These fibroblasts are responsible for making our scar tissue. Unfortunately, with ethnic skin and skin of color, these fibroblasts, the physiology of them, they can go crazy and they can actually form too much scar tissue, which leads to hypertrophic Mm -hmm. scars and keloidal scarring. So that's a really important feature to know about skin of color because 
sorry to interrupt. I just want to make sure I understand that scarring type. Is keloiding basically raised scarring? And is that the simplest way of expressing it? Or? Yes, they're basically an over-exuberant scar tissue that causes this raised, more nodule, more firm wax and nodules on the skin. And it can, it's very common in acne. And as acne you know, goes away and we treat it, sometimes it can leave behind keloids to cysts that can leave keloids to even plastic surgery. When we do uh, plastic surgery, we also have an ingrained, you know, keloid and post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation treatment plan. So it's mm-hmm. really important to understand those features, but then also hair is different. So you have skin and hair that are both different in skin of color. So there's tightly coiled hairs in African-American hair, which are very fragile. So the curly hair can lead to ingrown hairs and what we call pseudo folliculitis or razor bumps. And that's common in men and women that we see. So they may be misdiagnosed as acne, but in fact, they have this pseudo folliculitis from the ingrown hairs. They can also have a lot more scarring alopecia, which we should be very much aware of and treat aggressively. So there's a lot of features that really dictate a difference in treatment parameters based on correctly diagnosing skin of color. What is the proper way to refer to these differences? Is We've been seeing skin of color, but is it, I've tripped over this, is it skin type, skin tone, you refer to the skin color? What is the appropriate framing for or way to refer to the differences in skin? So skin type is basically what I would call as, you know, I would ask them, are they normal, dry, combination? What type of skin do they have? And that can dictate my skincare regimen that I will advise them on. Then they have their skin color and the skin color or skin of color is defined as what we call Fitzpatrick types, four through six. And we identify them based on their propensity to burn or tan. So Fitzpatrick's one through three are the fair skin that have a higher risk of burn, less tanning. And then Fitzpatrick's four through six, which have a higher risk of hyperpigmentation and less risk of burns. So when we talk of skin of color and ethnic skin, we are referring to Fitzpatrick's four through six. Got it. Thank you. You mentioned earlier that the benefit is of having skin of colors you are less subject to skin cancers and photoaging. But I've definitely seen many stories where you still should be applying proper sunscreen, sun protection, even if you do have darker skin. Why is that? I mean, I just try to understand the, the mechanism there that is at play. So with skin of color, as we said, there's an inherent protection with sun, but it's not enough protection. So even though skin cancer is more of a higher incidence in fair skin because of the burning effect, when skin of color, it's a lower incidence for skin of color to get skin cancer, but it is still a risk. You know, we could still get basal cells, squamous cells, but we're still at risk of getting the deadliest form of skin cancer called melanoma. Unfortunately, when we as skin of color get melanoma, we're at higher risk of dying from melanoma than our fair skin counterparts. So 90% of fair-skinned people that have a diagnosis of melanoma will survive at the five-year mark versus maybe only 66% of African-Americans. And part of the reason why is because it presents differently. And that's why it's really important to be on the lookout for the common locations for melanoma, where melanoma can occur more on sun-exposed areas or the trunk of males or behind the knees of fair-skinned men and women, 
in skin of color, we're more likely to get it on palms, the soles of our feet, our nails. And the misconception is, especially among maybe primary care doctors, that skin of color has lower risk. So therefore, I don't need to do necessarily a thorough skin cancer screening. They're not at high risk. They're not looking at between the toes and underneath the feet. And also with self-examinations, which is part of the education for skin of color, is to do your own self-exams every month and look underneath your feet and look between your toes and look at your nails. And this is what you're looking for, you know, a stripe, a dark stripe that comes out of your nail that is growing should be looked at. And if they are able to come in sooner, then we can diagnose them quicker and get them the resulting treatment faster. But what often happens is there's a delay in treatment, a misconception that they're at lower risk. And by the time that they present their late stage, which makes them at higher risk of of death and mortality from skin cancer. So the short answer is everyone needs to be protecting themselves from skin cancer, but even more important also for my skin of color patients, their perspective is I don't like the dark marks. I don't like the post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation. I want treatment. And the treatment is not necessarily just throwing a skin lightener at it. It's actually wearing your sunblock first every single day. Hmm. There's a lot of re-education that's needed within the ethnic skin community. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen a TV ad or magazine ad or anything for skincare with anyone but a Caucasian shown in it. You're right. One of the things I've always been interested in is what are the aesthetic treatments that are inappropriate and on the flip side, appropriate for individuals with skin of color? I know, for instance, certain lasers should not be used, of course, because light is attracted to the, you know, the skin tone or the melanin. So can you just walk me through some of those, the ones you can and can't do if you have skin of color? So with the melanocytes being very highly reactive, they're highly reactive to heat and lasers and other factors. So lasers is my number one caution with skin of color. There's maybe only a handful of lasers that are safe to use versus, you know, a lot more in bare skin. So lasers that are the gold standard for skin of color, such as the, what we call the NDAG is my go-to for laser hair removal, very effective, but also very safe. It's really important to go to an experienced provider who also understands the laser because it's not enough just to have a gold standard laser, but not know how to use it in proper settings. So using low fluences over a period of time is really going to help deliver safe energy fluences to actually get to that root of hair and get results. It's also important to educate the patients that, you know, it's going to take more time. It's going to take maybe double the treatments that maybe a fair-skinned individual needs as a result of the way that we're doing treatment. In addition, there's more treatments that I could do on my fair skin, for example, for small little lesions or skin tags or removals, such as cryotherapy, which is freezing spots. Freezing spots in in skin of color is just a no-no. It's going to leave these permanent white hypopigmented areas. Do you see that in your practice? individuals come in say and got treated somewhere else and they didn't take that into account? All the time. I mean, there's inappropriate peels that are done. There's inappropriate lasers being done. A lot of the skin of color community also goes abroad because they feel that maybe they can't go to somebody here in the States that understands their skin color. So they'll go to abroad and then unfortunately get complications from that. So it's treating, you know, thinking that they're going to get the best treatment from a skin of color doctor or place that actually does the reverse. 
So, you know, these countries don't have the FDA approved standards and rigors that we do. So they're using all sorts of things that I'm unaware of. So for example, when it comes to the filler market, there's, you know, lots more fillers that are out there and they come back with all sorts of deformities and use of these silicones and other things that are on the black market that shouldn't be utilized. And it makes our job harder to be able to treat them. And so you said that you see that pattern. Is it based on trying to find a doctor or a clinic that sort of is shaped around their world interests or the the way they perceive themselves? And so I would only associate myself with a clinician who looks like myself, for instance. Is that it? Or is it saving money is the core? I think there's multifactorial reasons behind that. And part of it is going to be, well, I want to be able to trust the person who's doing my treatment, do they understand my skin color? Are they sensitive? Do they respect? Are they, is there a connection? You know, there's just an unknown presence of respect and trust. When, for example, if I walk into a room with another, you know, Southeast Asian, there's no need for any extra conversation because I already understand the lifestyle and the cultural and all the background that goes along with it. Similarly, When an African-American patient goes to, for example, an African-American doctor, they're going to feel a lot more at ease, sort of a sense of relief that I don't have to explain myself. I don't have to explain all the things that I do at home that they might not understand. So there's a cultural sensitivity. There's a racial sensitivity. There's styling practices that might be different, especially with black hair. There might be different cultural nuances. And all of that factors into whether or not I'm going to trust my doctor. But certainly there's also the factor of cost savings and finding the best deal too, which that's another whole re-education and another podcast right there. <laughs> I love to go down these amazing conversations I have because again, it goes back to, we haven't had enough of those type of conversations. And mm-hmm. one of the areas that I have not heard a lot about until just recently has been around the skin whitening and lightening areas and how I've been to Asia several times. I've seen the ads everywhere for, and I've been to India and seen like big billboards around skin whitening and lightening and bleaching. I know it's controversial, particularly for dermatologists as it relates to messages and concerns about skin lightening and the damage it can do. But it's a $30 billion industry according to the World Health Organization. And I just would love to hear from your perspective, do you have a like a moral objection to even these products being in the market? Is there a lot of nuance inside of this that's hard to really grapple in a single statement like that? Uh, I just would love to hear your initial thoughts about skin lightening. Well, I think if you go abroad, I mean, there's a whole other new world out there that we don't necessarily experience here in the States. And there is this $30 billion skin whitening product propaganda going on. And everything that you see and hear culturally is all about the differences in light skin versus dark skin. So the skin whitening is not something that I am a proponent of. I am all about skin brightening and using your natural beauty and your natural glow and evening your skin tone, which is skin brightening. But if someone comes to me and people have come to me, I want to make my skin whiter or lighter. What can you do full head to toe? And really the idea is to re-educate them, right? That's why I started my podcast called 50 Shades of Beautiful. The whole idea for the treatment for this is it's about treating your inner self. It's not the outward treatment. It's about all of these injustices that the society has put 
on the power that's associated with having lighter skin or having fair skin. So it goes down to India. They can't get married if you're dark skin. A girl who is young is told to wear their sunblock because so you don't get tan. You know, you do everything you can to keep your skin looking as fair and as lovely, which is the number one skin lightening product in the world is fair and lovely so that they could get married. Because if you are dark, that's associated with labor work. That's associated with not getting married. That's associated with being ugly. That's associated with these caste systems and traditional, you know, outdated systems that just shouldn't exist, but it's 400 years plus of generations believing in this. So the idea right now is to really change that perspective. So unfortunately there's a black market for bleaching creams. And I've seen bad things happen from that where they adulterate it with steroids. And now they have complications and permanent stretch marks from that. I've seen mercury, inorganic mercury, that's also in other heavy metal salts that are in there that cause systemic disturbances and neurological problems. Wow. You know, and hydroquinone, unfortunately, it's been banned abroad, which has made it a very bad marketing for us and for dermatologists to use in the States. Because for us, hydroquinone is still the gold standard and a very safe product when done use efficient. So there's all the backlash where it's banned abroad, but then what does that mean for the States? And so I get a lot of questions, well, isn't that dangerous? Well, in fact, it's very safe and very effective when a dermatologist is you know, mm. supervising you. So there's all of these nuances when it comes to what's safe, what's not, what is okay to use, what's not, what is the root of the issue? And that's really the treatment is really treating the root of the issue rather than making your skin lighter. The first word that struck me that you said was propaganda. And then you went into the 400 years of, there's a lot of history here of how we are in a place where individuals feel they want to look lighter in appearance in their skin. So do you agree with the companies of, you know, Johnson & Johnson has just last week, they decided to take one of their largest selling lightning creams off the market I think the one you mentioned in India is, is it, it's fair and lovely is, I, I don't know if they're pulling it in the market or they're just renaming it, but do you have a strong point of view that these products should just be banned holistically or is that unrealistic? And it really starts with changing the parameters of how people see beauty. Yes, I definitely am a strong believer of redefining beauty, having conversations on global beauty, that we are all beautiful in our own skin, no matter what our skin color, our race, our creed, anything. And again, that's that whole podcast that I'm doing is being comfortable and confident in who you are and in, in your own skin and letting go of stereotypes and letting go of colorism. You know, it's unlearning the things that we've learned really is what this is all about. I am happy to see that I think the marketing is really the important thing is that these fairness creams should not be marketed as fairness creams because there is this underlying tone of being fair is more beautiful. So the fairness creams really probably aren't really much more than just some skin brightening ingredients, but it's about how it's marketed. And it's about selling more of a product because you're making people feel that they have to be fair versus being dark than they're ugly. So I'm all for renaming and rebranding and redefining what beauty truly is. I still believe that skin brightening is a category that will continue with fair skin for sun damage, as well as ethnic skin for this post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation. Because remember, that's the number one reason 
that skin of color is coming in to see the dermatologist is those brown marks. And those brown marks can be helped with skin brightening products. Is it an uncomfortable conversation for you to have with the patient who comes in and just generally wants a, as you mentioned, head to toe, they call it lighter skin color or tone. Is that a hard conversation for you to have? Or is it one that you've had many times and feel very confident going into it? You know, I think it's been ingrained by generations and generations. It's something that I, being you know Indian American, have heard from within our Indian culture. And a lot of times it's another Indian patient that's coming to me for that. So it's easier for me to talk about because I connect with it and I understand it. I understand where they're coming from. But there is that boundary that I have to place with the fact that I won't be changing the color of their skin, but I will be helping their confidence in doing the other things that I possibly can in terms of evening skin tone, but really working on the internal part of themselves. And I can't do it alone, but it's just it's a start for me. And that's where you know I'll refer them to my podcast or things like that, where that's really what you need rather than me giving you a prescription for like what Michael Jackson had, you know, and getting depigmented because some of them literally just want a prescription to make them head to toe lighter. Do you think the change of heart that Johnson Johnson had and Unilever, you know, they're making a product changes and name changes and marketing changes. Do you think that change of heart is directly tied to the George Floyd and Black Lives Matter movement that has come into sharp relief recently? Or has there been something afoot? And has there been a consistent feedback and concern and sort of desire for these companies to take action? I think that there was a propensity for things to be sort of moving on a faster track now with the world. I think that overall, things have been very slow to move. And I've worked with big companies, including Unilever and Procter & Gamble, and they want skin of color dermatologists. So I help to you know, formulate and do things that will help move us forward. But I don't believe that this was something that you know, they were working towards until the world literally has spoken up and raised their voices and raised their concerns. And the conversation about action happening now and not having to wait and put it off because really inaction is just not an option anymore. So I definitely think that things have been hastened and rapidly moving as a result of what's going on in the world. And I'm happy to hear that there is change coming. I think that it's going to take time for everything to settle because I'm sure removing these particular products is also going to have some controversy among the skin of color community themselves who are looking for these products and want these products because of the cultural norms and the societal pressures that have already been built in. But I'm happy to see that you know, there's change starting to happen for a good reason, progress and more advancements toward positive change. And that's really the goal. That's the intent. Do you feel like the medical aesthetics industry is a bit behind on those changes? I only ask that because of my own observation is that I did see Allergan post very explicit, you know, this is what we are going to change in our advertising, how we depict patients and images we choose and so forth. And it was a pretty comprehensive list of things they they were pledging to do. But other than some statements around we support Black Lives Matter, I, I just haven't seen a broader movement afoot or an awakening that's happened in the industry. But maybe I'm not privy to those conversations and you're more plugged in. Do you see change 
happening in with device makers and people in, in aesthetics or is there still a step behind? I think that there's still a lot of work to be done among the aesthetic community. We did several research papers for the laser companies because we do have such a high patient population of skin of color. And like I said, when I was writing my books and even still when I'm looking for images, I'm looking for peer-reviewed journals that have depict Fitzpatrick four through six in skin of color. It's better, but there's still a ways to go. It's not top of mind, unfortunately. So I do believe that there's got to be a more rapid change. And as you said, an awakening and a conscious effort and a consciousness of learning how to be a servant and serving at this time to the level of the needs of the ethnic skin community. And what does that mean? And that's going to be taking that time to really figure out as an organization, what can I do to meet the needs of dermatologists and skin color patients? And what is it they need? And part of it is they just may not know because they're not involved in the conversation. And now that the world is forcing the conversation to happen, which is a good thing, but I think you're right. Like they just may not know. It's a matter of taking that time to really process this and figuring out how are things going to change because it is a pivotal moment in our history and a pivotal moment in time where there is a paradigm shift that can happen, but it's action because inaction is just not, it's not an option anymore. Yeah. And I think your earlier comment about the demographics of at least America are changing so dramatically. I think the companies would benefit from understanding more where things are headed. And I looked at our own data and real self and roughly half of the consumers who've used our platform and moved forward and contacted a doctor for an inquiry for an appointment have identified themselves as other than Caucasian, other race or identity. And yet when I look at the imagery of aesthetics that are chosen in advertising and on before and after galleries, it really seems like there's a disproportionate number of particularly white females that are depicted relative to that population and where the demographics are going. So I I think there's opportunity. I agree. If you had all the CEOs in front of you and I'll uh, hopefully attract some of the CEOs to this podcast um, by (laughs) asking this question, but if you had CEOs from, you know, the big, drug companies, pharma, and device makers in front of you right now, what advice would you give them for how to think about doing more or how to think about the, you know, not to be crass, the business opportunity of serving skin of color patients? I think that there's so much opportunity and it's really spanned amongst all different levels of industry in education, health, finance, safety. So there overall can be so much to be done. And I think it starts with listening and supporting skin of color leaders within their own enterprise so that you actually have a balanced discussion and a real discussion about what is going on. So the representation of the world should be a representation of your company so that you have voices from you know all 50 shades and really get input. So I think that It starts at the executive level, but it also starts with medical education and having more skin of color dermatologists, having more. I think there's only 5% of all doctors in the US, for example, that are African-American. Though black people make up uh, over 13%, 14% of the total population. And when you look at specialties, it's much smaller. So when you have 
only one black dermatologist in San Francisco in a diverse population of San Francisco. I mean, it tells you how much work needs to be done in all levels with education, medical education, the executive. So allowing for the skin of color leaders and ethnic skin community to really come full force and it starts at the top. So there's definitely some disparity just at the top. And I think it's allowing that conversation to happen there because the universe has spoken. I think the universe is speaking to us, not only with this pandemic that we went through, and then at the same time, these national protests and international protests happening. I mean, this should shake everyone up to you know, listen because the universe is telling us to start to become more conscious of the changes that need to happen and impact the world. Otherwise, we might become our own worst enemy. And I think that's where, as humanity, we have to come together. And just as we are trying to battle the coronavirus, we should not be battling each other, but should come together united and continue the conversation. And inaction is just not an option. So there's the small changes that can be made first to, I think, instill really big rewards over time. I certainly put myself in the shoes of the individuals you're speaking to, CEOs. I'm a CEO in the aesthetic industry, and I fully acknowledge that it's unacceptable for inaction at this point. It's unacceptable to my team. It's unacceptable to my shareholders, and most importantly, to my customers. And I need to do more, starting at the top. And we are going through some very challenging learning exercises internally, some very hard conversations, but also making definitive commitments to make a difference and make a change. And, and so stay tuned. We will certainly be doing things and making differences that hopefully advance what you're describing as, as a very important change that needs to happen in the medical sex space. Well, I definitely commend you and I have full confidence that you are going to make those necessary changes because you've been there for your consumers and supported the doctors and you're supporting the future of your own organization. So if anyone's going to do it, I know you can, Tom, and I'm here to help you. Well, that's, that's awesome. And part of doing this conversation today is a step in that right direction in helping myself and my, my listeners get better educated about skin of color. So just to wrap on a few things, you mentioned a few resources. Where can that individual go to find more information and get educated? So there's a couple of resources that I think are really great with advocating for skin of color. And one of them is Skin of Color Society that was founded by Susan Taylor and several of the big pioneers of skin of color. And they've got anything from education to research to videos. And they really are trying to empower other healthcare professionals to be educated on skin of color and really you know, pave the way forward. I'm also part of the American Academy of Dermatology and I'm part of their diversity group as well, their diversity task force. And I do believe that they are trying to make the changes necessary among the AAD to be able to offer education and resources out there to consumers and really you know, help pave things forward. So I'm a big proponent of, of both of those. And then, you know, I'm just trying to bring in the resources as well myself with podcasts and things to continue the conversation and diversity. And I think getting involved in the communities or getting to learn about different communities or, you know, I feel really privileged when I see Caucasians who come in, for example, to our world and really want to learn and know about my culture and, and what we do and the traditions and all of that. So I think that conversations are also really important, whether it's your neighbor or your friend or finding a mentor. And, you know, if you ever come to my house, I'll probably teach you some Bollywood dance along the way. So 
I would love that. My dream someday is to go to an Indian wedding in India. I've been to one here yes. in America, but yes. I've heard the stories and, and the dancing <laughs> and celebration that And a week-long celebration. Yeah, because it lasts much, much longer than a single <laughs> evening. One of the things my audience would love to do, I'm sure, is find you online. So could you repeat more about your podcast as well as what are some of your favorite places to share your insights? You check out my podcast on Spotify and iTunes. It's called Dr. Sonia's 50 Shades of Beautiful. And it's all about redefining beauty and having conversations about what global beauty truly means. So really eliminating those stereotypes and the judgments and, and all of that that goes along with it. And so I try to bring some inspiring stories and inspiring information to um, my patients. It started with my patients, but really now the broader sense of the world. In addition, you can find me on Instagram with Elite MD Spa, which is my office, as well as my personal page, which is Dr. Sonia MD. And then our website is EliteMDSpa.com. And you could certainly reach me an email. We actually love training other doctors. We love mentoring other students. So we constantly have some visitors with all of that. So I'm happy to support. Fantastic. I am just so honored that you were willing to spend time with me. And, and also just what you do to give back is, is fantastic. And between you and your husband, I've always been inspired by the amount of energy and passion you put into your practice and it just shows. So hats off to you for all you do and thank you again. And for those who would like to follow more, you can go to heysiri.com for, I'll do follow on blog posts about skin of color and more to come at Real Self about skin of color. We have a lot of things we're underway to make sure we serve our audience and and help people get also educated and informed. So thank you so much again, Dr. Sonia, and have a great day ahead. Thank you, Tom. It's been my pleasure. The best way to reach me is just send an email to heysiri at realself.com. That's H-E-Y-S-E-E-R-Y at realself.com. We look at every single message that comes in and respond. And if you have feedback that's positive, love it. Challenges, even better. Want to be a guest? even more delightful. So please get in touch with us, want to know more.